from the CSB Studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, on the MTR Radio Network. This is the Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. Lots to go over today. Apologize for the little bit of technical difficulties we have here. Unfortunately, there is uh, no music. There's no theme song today. Uh, this will be all resolved hopefully by next week. I think we'll be in good shape. But it's not going to take away from the fact that we got an excellent show planned today. Looking forward to everything that's going on here. Um, we're going to start out in about 10 minutes. We'll be joined by former Yankees pitcher Eli Gruba, who pitched for the Yankees in 1959 and 1960. Hopefully we'll be able to share some good stories about then. Uh, second part of the first hour, we'll be joined by former uh, American League All-Star Brett Boone. And then in the second hour, we got former Phillies, Braves, and Rockies pitcher Marvin Freeman. So lots to go over. Definitely excited about this show. There's a ton of stuff to go over baseball-related. And, of course, I'm going to start off with the New York Mets. I had the pleasure of being at the game yesterday, and it was almost a displeasure. As anybody who knows me knows that I'm very passionate about the Mets record in games that I go to. And, you know, they have, for, you know, the hundreds of games that I've been to in my life, the Mets have managed a pretty record and a winning record in most seasons that I've actually been to. You know, I've actually, whoa. They've actually been at. Apologize for that, but um, this year hasn't been the same. I've been to six games. Mets one opening day against Atlanta while I was down there with my brother, and they have dropped the last five games that I've been to. And I went there last night, hoping to see the Mets finish off the uh, Baltimore Orioles in a three-game sweep, and it looked very good for quite a while. And unfortunately, things started to unravel in the ninth as we saw Frank Francisco, who was pitched very well. And the turning point really of his season came in that Toronto game where I saw the first two games in Toronto where the Mets got beat. They got destroyed in the first game. They got beat by a great pitching performance by Brandon Morrow in the second game. And the third game, yes, the Mets ended up getting a win. Kind of a touchy situation in the ninth. Francisco got into some trouble, ended up striking out the side, and then went on a little run. And he's been pitching very well since. Last night, here's the way I'm going to look at it. I'm not going to start jumping on Frank Francisco and saying that it's time to get him out of here, time to replace him. The guy stinks. Get rid of him. The guy's entitled to a bad game. And the good thing about it is the Mets managed to win this game. And if you imagine how hot it was last night, and I'll tell you, it was still within about you know, 11, 12 o'clock last night in the New York, New Jersey area, probably about in the high 70s, low 80s, which is you know, un, you know, probably something we haven't really seen in a while. And just imagine just sitting there hot, sweating, just wondering what's going to happen. A 4 nothing lead in the eighth inning becomes 4-2, and then 4-3 in the ninth with Francisco. He loads the bases. He walks in a run. It's 4-3. And, oh, man, I'll tell you, if I ended up driving home with a loss last night, it would not have been good. I was just wondering if they were going to be able to pull it off, and I'm glad they did. You know, I'm very happy. I'm excited. I'm glad. I'm very happy that they were able to put this together and they finish off another sweep. And this is a team that's either being swept or sweeping over the last four series. They were swept by the Yankees. They ended up sweeping the Tampa Bay Rays in Tampa. They got swept by the Cincinnati Reds at home, and now they sweep the Baltimore Orioles at home. And now 
they head back to the Subway Series at City Field against the New York Yankees. And like I've said before, a bunch of over-publicized nothing going on between the Mets and the Yankees. I could go without all this extra interleague play. I can go without, you know, having to see this six Met Yankee games every year. But you know what? Life's going to go on. It's happening now. And as a team, you've got to play whoever's on your schedule. And right now, the Mets have to focus on the Yankees. And they have to try to win a series here. It's very important that they come back and they win at least two out of three here. I think to build some confidence as they go forward. And if they win two out of three, listen, everybody talked about that you know, ridiculous stretch of over 500 teams that the Mets have had to play over the last, whatever, three, four weeks. And if they could take two or three of the Yankees, then I think they prove themselves to be the real deal. Now, if they don't, if they lose two out of three, am I going to feel that much differently? No, I'm not going to. I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. I don't think it's going to be really something to get too overwhelmed about. But I think the Mets, with R.A. Dickey pitching on Sunday and with Chris Young and Jonathan Neese, I think they they got enough pitching to hang with this Yankee team. And, of course, the Yankees coming off of a couple tough losses to the Atlanta Braves, which ended their 10-game winning streak and their resurgence, which I predicted was going to happen. You know, everybody that said the Yankees were getting too old, the Yankees were about to fall apart, uh, they're doing pretty much what they've done every other season. And they get off to a slow start, not necessarily a terrible start, but a start that you wouldn't think they would get to. A team that's used to winning, a team that's used to going out there and just winning a lot more games than they're losing. They're going to outslug you. They got some pitching. A team that I thought was up there amongst the best teams in the American League, and they've proven this to be true. They won 10 in a row. They're back on track. They dropped the last two to the Atlanta Braves. Listen, if I'm a Yankee fan or if you're a Yankee fan, I don't think there's any reason to be upset. Listen, the team played well. The team has gotten themselves back to what a fan should expect from the New York Yankees, and that's winning baseball, that's offense, that's solid starting pitching. And I'll tell you, the turning point of the Yankees' season has been the change in the starting pitching. I mean, they essentially have five guys out there that are really giving them a chance to win. Phil Hughes' game yesterday, notwithstanding, because Hughes has actually been one of the major reasons why the Yankees have played better baseball. Hughes has had a very good month. He's pitched very well. And listen, I mean, they're getting a start every every starter from Sabathia to Nova to Kuroda, you know, to Andy Pettit. They're getting a chance to win every day. And the Yankees starting pitching to change from when it was inconsistent at the beginning of the season to now where it's looked very good. And that in my mind, is the reason, and and listen, I think it's pretty obvious, you know, and and I've said this about the Mets all along, the best chance the New York Mets have in winning baseball games is when they have good starting pitching, and you can see what's happened, and you want to talk about the Yankees for what happened earlier this season, when they were struggling, they were not getting the starting pitching, they were getting, you know, bad starts from whether it was a Freddie Garcia who's no longer in the rotation, to Phil Hughes, to Sabathia who was off to a rough start. And, of course, that all comes together with the return of Andy Pettit. And Andy Pettit coming back to the mix, coming back to the Yankee rotation, certainly has been a positive thing. He has done nothing but pitch well. And the, the Mets will get to see him tomorrow at City Field. And I don't expect anything less. You know, Pettit, for some reason, is looking very good. And, and I'm not saying that Andy Pettit isn't a good pitcher. 
I'm not saying that Andy Pettit is not that good and shouldn't be pitching well. But here's a guy that towards the end of the 2010 season kind of looked like he might have been finished. And it wasn't that he was getting rocked. It's that he just didn't look like he had it in his heart to really be able to be at the top of his game. And when he retired, I really felt that it was for good. Now, he takes the year off. He comes back. He's in the best shape of his life. And listen, he's throwing the ball well. There's no question he is throwing the ball as well as he ever has right now. And for the Yankees, listen, that's anything. That is any anything more than they could have asked for. Here's a guy that's jumped in and essentially become the number two starter with the other guys stepping up, with Phil Hughes stepping up, with you know Nova continuing to pitch well. And I think Nova's been fairly consistent all season. And Kuroda, for the exception of a couple bad starts, has pitched well. So the Yankees right now got five starters that are really giving you a chance to win. And like I said with the Mets, they got a chance to win every time they get a good start. And, you know, R.A. Dickey, you know, throwing shutouts every time out certainly gives them a chance to win every time he's got the ball. And Johan Santana looked good after a couple bad starts after the no-hitter. So I think the Mets got two very good starters, and they got three other guys that I think should pitch consistently. I have yet to see Chris Young really get beat up. He's given up a couple hits here and there. He's given up a couple runs here and there. And the fact that he pitched seven innings in his last start is very, very good. You know, here's a guy that's coming off of a major surgery, the same operation that Johan Santana had, and he's back sooner. It looks like he's really throwing the ball well. And I think the Mets' rotation now with the aforementioned Dickey and Santana, with Chris Young, with Jonathan Neese and Dylan G. They should have a chance to win every time out. And that's what I think is very interesting. And I think the Mets, listen, am, am I going to buy into this team being a playoff team if the season ends today, they're in the postseason? Uh, listen, I, th I think we're going to need to see a little more of this before I guarantee myself or guarantee that the Mets will be in the postseason. And you got to see what's going to happen within the next month or two. But I think what's happened over this rough stretch that everybody talked about with all the tough competition, whether it's you know the interleague games against the Yankees and the Rays and the Orioles, and you know playing the Cincinnati Reds and playing the Nationals, the Mets have actually hung in there. They haven't looked too bad. They are playing with a lot of heart, and I think they really have proven themselves to be a legitimate contender right now. And I know it's real easy to say, "Oh man, you know every year they show you something," but this team has shown a little more than that, and it's really taken. They've taken the personality of their manager, and I've told you about the starting pitching, which has been very important. That, you know, they are getting a good start just about every time out. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, if Jonathan Neese goes out there tomorrow and gives up four runs in the first inning, then the Mets aren't winning the game. But if Jonathan Neese hangs in there, then I think they have a very good chance to win. We'll get back to this in a little bit. Right now, I'm going to be joined by. Former Yankees pitcher of the 19, early 1960s, Eli Gruba. Eli, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thanks for having a couple minutes today. Hey, right. uh, listen, thank, thank, thanks for having a couple minutes today. I really appreciate you having, uh, having you on, Eli. No problem. No problem, John. Just... All right. Uh, you know, as, as you came into the Yankees, you know, 1959, 1960, the Yankees are coming off of a pretty good run in the 50s. 
did you feel like you were going to be part of something special as you were coming through, you know, through the minors and into the majors with the Yankees of the uh, early 60s? Well, you know, I got out of the service in 59. Okay. And I went right, you know, to spring training with Richmond and, you know, had a good year. So, uh, you know, being a Yankee, everything happened so fast. And then, you know, you didn't think anything of it. And then all of a sudden, you go into the clubhouse, and now here you see your nemesis, you know, the ones that used to beat the heck out of your White Sox. You've seen Whitey Ford, here's Mantle, and Scourin, and Barra, and holy smokes. You know, now you realize who was there in the clubhouse. You know, Babe Bruce was in the same clubhouse, and, uh, you know, all the great Yankees. So it was, you know, it was quite, it was, it was amazing. And then, and then what, what really, the coup de grace was when I got the uniform on, and it really hit me when I went out onto the field, you know, the old Yankee Stadium. And then, wow, you know. Yeah, well, t- tell us a little bit about your debut. Now, you, you came out there, you're wearing a uniform for the first time. Did did it hit you as much as I think it did? I uh, know. You know what? It was really funny, John. It was like, it, it wasn't in shock, but it there was so much going on. It was just, you know, it, it, it didn't hit me yet. Nothing. But well, the strange part was, is that, see, I came out of the Boston Red Sox organization. And my, and my idol... All my life was Ted Williams, and now Boston's in town. And of course, now I look up and there's number nine. You know, go holy smokes, <laughs> wow! You know, now you're saying to yourself, "Damn!" And then from there we go. Here's part of the story. We go to Boston from there, and we have, and we we had a terrible team. Not a terrible team, but, you know, McDougal was hurt and Kubik was hurt and a whole mess of people were hurt. Whitey was aching and and uh, just a lot of people were having, you know, subpar years. And get to Boston, and I, he tells me I'm in the bullpen. Didn't think anything of it. I get called into the game. I get an out, and still, it does, you know, I don't hear anything. I don't hear I'm there, you know, and then, of course, I see Don Budden, who I was in the service with, and some, a couple other guys at uh, Jerry Casale, who was, uh, I was in the, in the minor leagues with uh, Jerry, and all of a sudden, now, I hear, now betting for, <laughs> for Boston, Ted Williams. <laughs> well, he was my first strikeout. Uh, that's awesome. And then the next day, I'm hitting fungos, you know, the Yankees had to, you know, the young guys had to hit fungos and do it, which I didn't, you know, I loved doing that anyway. He was standing behind me, John, and he looked like he was nine foot nine. (laughs) (laughs) And he looked at me and he said, hey, kid, you got one heck of a slider. And I liked to, I didn't know what to say. I spit all over (laughs) him. So it was... Yeah, you know, and then it then it hit me there, you know. Then, you know, then all of a sudden you realize that hey, wow. Yeah, you're a major leaguer. <laughs> yeah. Nah, that's, yeah, that's great, man. And and you know, following Ted, you know, you know Ted Williams and being a Red Sox fan. Tell us a little bit about growing up following the Red Sox back then. Of course, you know, unfortunately they were unable to you know 
have you know have the big runs that teams like the Yankees did. Uh, tell yeah. us a little bit about the Yankee Red Sox rivalry from being a Boston fan growing up. Well, well, I didn't, I didn't, we didn't get that yet. I, you know, I was when I was first there, I didn't realize that you know the rivalry. It was evident, I imagine, but it was more evident later on. You know, uh, when you know the the press made more of it, like with the Babe Ruth thing, you know, the, with Boston, especially when they you know blew the pennant and all that kind of stuff. But the thing was. With me, you know, being a Red Sox, Red Sox was a fantastic organization. They treated their players, you know, and the kids, especially the kids, they treated us like a million dollars. And we had, you talk about some great teachers. We had, you know, for pitchers, we had Johnny Johnny Murphy and uh, uh, Mace Brown and, you know, Charlie Wagner to teach us, you know, uh, certain things. And it, it, I'll tell you what, it was super. It really was. I And... When I got traded to the Yankees, before I went to service, I I didn't like it that much. I really didn't. So the so the rivalry still kind of existed, probably not at the level to where it is now no. or it was, you know, twenty even thirty even thirty years ago. But, no, but, no, but, but, was, but obviously, was, being a Boston fan, you probably didn't care too much for the Yankees. Well, no, I was see the thing was I was a, a, a White Sox fan because I lived in Chicago. Yeah. But when we played, when we played strikeouts and everything else, you know, all the kids would get in the school grounds together. I was not the first one to pick, and everything else. Everybody normally would pick the Cubs or the White Sox. I picked Boston, and you had to bat exactly like the lineup. Okay. Whatever the lineup hit, right-handed, left-handed, you had to pick. You yeah, know, it's so. funny, dude. I could relate to that because I actually used to do that when I was younger. But I was, yeah, I was playing yeah. by myself. I'd throw the ball off the wall or you know, pitch back or something. Sure. And I, and it, you know, if it was a left hand pitcher in the game because I was right handed, I would, you know, I would make like I was throwing left handed and try to emulate the pitches that the pitchers throw yeah. and stuff like that. So I could totally relate. Well, we the thing was, you know, it was basically more hitting, you know. Yeah. And I had him down to a T, you know, Ted, how he used to, uh, you know. Flexes with his hands, and he'd move his hands, and you know, I had I had all that down. I had Vern Stevens' wide stance, Bobby Doerr holding the bat high up over his head, and then when I did get to be a White Sox, I had Appling down pat, and you know, uh, Taft right was in right, and you know, uh, I had all that. We, you know, and we'd call it. We had to. Actually, we played chicken cloth before he even got you know to choose first. You know, so that it was that's that's the beauty of it. You know, our youth, we didn't have any. You know, we did it all ourselves. There was nobody there to holler at us or, or anything else. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun, man. Yeah, it was, man. I've often thought that I'd love to. You know, I'm in the process for the last ten years of writing a book. And and the fun about it, the fun thing about it, I've got a blessed with a good memory. Is that I remember those days, you know, in going into the school grounds, and and the thing was, there was no grass in the school grounds; it was all pebbles, you know. And you'd come home, and when you slide and everything else, you'd have, you know, your mom, my mother, and myself, you know, she worked her butt off all her life to get me where I wanted, you know, wanted to go. And I'd come home and I'd be holes in her pants, and her, you know, your shirt was all torn. <laughs> yeah, so that's the beauty of it. 
being a Yankee, I'll tell you that you know, there's nothing wrong with being a Yankee. It, it, what I loved about it was when you got there, you behaved like one. There was no shenanigans in the clubhouse. Uh, I got caught, caught while I was doing a crossword puzzle along with Duke Maz one day, and I got a tap on the shoulder. And they said, Crisetti, tap me on the shoulder. And he said, the old man wants to see you. And I went, uh-oh, now what did I do? And uh, he didn't even look up at me. He was putting on his uniform, and he said, uh, who's coming into town? I said, Detroit. He says, well, don't you usually pitch against Detroit? You do a pretty good job. I said, yes, sir, you do. He said, you do me a favor. Let me know. If doing a crossword helps you get out anybody with a Detroit Tigers. <laughs> and he says, we don't do that in here. That's enough. No crossword puzzles. Yeah, there's always there's always that image of, you know, just the way it was, even in baseball in general. Was that just a, a Yankee thing, or was, was that all through baseball about the way, you know, the etiquette of the way you were supposed to act in the clubhouse? Well, I, I it, it was the Yankees. See, you got to remember because the Yankees won most of the time. It was a Yankee thing more, more than anything else, you know. And and I think most of the other clubs resented that image, you know. That uh, and you know you got John in those days. You weren't allowed to to converse and to fraternize with other players. You'd get fined. Yeah, because yeah, there was always an umpire in the stands. There was no fraternization, none. You know, you'd sneak it. And me, when I got there, I, you know, I'll get all my buddies from Chicago would come out to see, uh, you know, their Eli in 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 a, in a Yankee uniform against the White Sox, and I'm talking to every ah, uh, Crosetti used to scream at me, you know, you're you're a Yankee now, act like one. Hey, you so go now- on. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. So now, now moving moving on to 1960, you actually made an appearance in the World Series, but you didn't yeah. you didn't pitch. Tell us a little bit about that. I was so mad I could have punched. I would have punched him. Anybody that got in my way. <laughs> what they didn't realize, what people didn't realize, is that Stengel called Duke Maz and myself into. Now Duke had a game once. I warmed up twice. Both of the games were were. What they, he allowed Whitey to pitch, you know, it was, it was like 15 to nothing. And I think Whitey finished two games, I think. He pitched what, nine innings both games, and they were out of, you know, one was 15 to nothing, and the other one's like 11 to two or something like that. Well, I didn't pitch. I wound up. Duke got into a game. We get called in his office, and he says, looks me right in the eye, and he says, I want you to look to pitch like Vernon Law. And he looked at Duke Mars and he says, I want you to pitch like Bob Friend. We pitch batting practice each 20 minutes apiece. Well, I want to tell you something. I could throw pretty good. I smoked him. I threw as hard as I could for 20 minutes. I said, well, I can't say what I said on, on the air. <laughs> <laughs> but both Duke and I were crushed. I was crushed. I was actually crushed. Because, see, nobody told me or told anybody that there are some players that are not going to get in the game. You know, because I, I figured, you know, he's going to use one of us you know, or use me. Well, needless to say, I was a little peeved. After the series is over, 
I'm crushed along with all the Yankees and everything else. And Gil McDougall was asked by a writer, who was the guy who had the best stuff? He says, you, you annihilated every pitcher just about. Who was the guy that gave you most trouble? And they said, well, actually, Tom Chaney had the best stuff. But he said, you want to know who, the, who had the best stuff for the series? The guy says, who? He said, Gerben Dukmas. <laughs> Because we we both we were roommates. We both said, "I'm smoking there," and I think we we did it for three games. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. yeah. It's a shame you didn't get in there because you figure a seven game series. You know, you're there. I'm, I, I totally I totally feel you. You you. I'm sure you expected to get in there at some point. Well, I understand. I'm not uh, totally or anything else, but we had, you know, he he brings in Ralph Terry and Ralph. Uh, you know, it's no Ralph had to go pitch. But he's got Ryan Duren sitting on the bench. He never even used Duren. Yeah. Duren, you know, he crushed Ryan. You know, Ryan too. He says, "Why wouldn't he use me?" <laughs> yeah. And and we and I got news for you. Whitey warmed up, tried to warm up. Whitey couldn't do it. He was gone. You know, he just couldn't do it. Hey, you think if you uh, if you got in Game Seven, you'd been able to get Mazeroski out? I'd have tried. <laughs> Why not? But, you know, one thing, my, <laughs> as you're coming off, you know, out of the clubhouse and my mother and my some of my relatives were there waiting for us, and I didn't know what to have to say to them. Uh, well, like I said, I was really, I was like in another world. I was, oh, was I angry. And one thing my mother told me, she said, well, one one thing, Eli, it wasn't you that did it. And I said, no, I wasn't, but I would have loved to have a chance to it. Anyway, you know, what the hell are you there for? No, absolutely, man. So mo- moving on, uh, you know, ni- the end of 1960, you get selected in the uh, expansion draft by the expansion uh, Los Angeles yeah. Angels. Uh, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Were you, uh, were, were you happy? Were you crushed? What was your feeling about being taken angry. in the expansion draft? I was draft? angry again. You know, I was, you know, I got a very, very nice letter from the uh, organization. To put on, uh, they put on, you know. But see, I was from another organization too. Remember, okay. and they had a lot of their young guys who have that came up through the uh, the Yankee organization. And uh, you know what they do is they look at you and the whole thing, and they say, "Well, somebody's got to be put on there." So when uh, when I found out, naturally you're a little bit crushed, and you know. Now I had played out in the Coast League in 1956, and it's it's you know it was beautiful out there, you know, Los Angeles, La La Land, and you know that kind of stuff. But uh, you know I'm leaving the New York Yankees. Yeah. Now was was there any like you know any positive thought like say listen, out of all the players that could be taken first overall, yeah, you were selected. Did you get any? Uh, was there any positive feeling about that, or was it all just, you know, why would the Yankees not want me? You know, I'm a Yankee. Was there was there any, like, positive feeling? Like, wow, you know, out of all the players that were available that could have been picked, you were, well, you were taking number one. Well, you know why I didn't think about that at the beginning. When okay. when when I got when I got the phone call that I was picked number one, you know, that family, it, it was an honor, you know, and, and the <laughs> But all I could think of is I'm no longer a Yankee. You know, holy smokes. Now, you know, this is what, wow. You know, what is an expansion in L.A. and the whole thing? And it was a, a lot of stuff was happening, you know. 
And then on the phone, ringing, of course, and then on the phone is, is Gene Autry says hello. Now, all of a sudden it hits you. You know, Gene Autry, the guy that I used to go see at the, at the show in South Chicago and pay 50 cents to see, you know, what, five, uh, seven cartoons, three serials, and see, uh, you know, uh, and then uh, Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and, and the Three Musketeers. And, and I said, this guy owns the ball club. And he's talking to me on the phone. I said, holy smokes. You know, then it, then it got to the point where, wow, you know, I'm number one. But, but being number one didn't hit me too much until I got spring training. And then the writers from out there got a hold of you. You know, you know I got a couple of calls. But it's not like it would be now. You know, now they'd be at your door. They'd be, you know, that somebody would do a special. The TVs would be there. You know, all, it was altogether different. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it was. I mean, I'm, you know, you look now, I mean, you got all, you know, bloggers and, you know, beat reporters for every team, sure. whether, you know, whether whether it's New York, whether yeah. it's Colorado, whether it's Toronto or Florida. I mean, they're, you know, they got a ton of, you know, people covering. They're going to be at your door pretty much. So I, well, you know, I understand how it could be a lot, you know, it could have been a lot different yeah. then where, you know, you might not have even gotten a story at all. No, well, one thing, too, is that, you know, a little bit later on, somebody said to me, said, you know, Eli, you'll be, a, you'll be a trivia question all your life. And it's true. You know, who's the first player ever? What he got? But one of the nicest things, you know, a lot of nice things have happened. I went back a couple times with the New York Yankees for old-timers day games. But one of the nicest things that ever happened in my, my life, I, on August 8th, I was invited back to Anaheim, Anaheim to throw out the first pitch. And and uh, I was at, it was heartwarming. It was beautiful. It was, you know, wow. You know, and, and what was nice about that, John, I, I had talked to Tim Mead, who was the, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know his title, but Tim, a very, very, very nice man, and I, we were yakking. I said, "Well, Tim, could, and I'm thinking of Nolan Ryan and you know some of the other guys." I said, "Isn't there somebody else that you were thinking about?" He says, "Eli, there was only number one. There was only the first angel. There was only one. That's it." Yeah, absolutely. Now, it, I, I, it, I think that's an awesome thing to think about too, because you look is. at the whole it history is. of the organization. The first yes. player that could be traced to that organization, yeah. number one, is is you. And you know, John, there's a there's a thing that I, I want people to realize in something else. You may maybe later on in your life, you maybe have been a horse's patootie. Don't get me wrong, but when mm-hmm. you were there, you know, most people would say, "How could he?" Be? I was number one, no matter what, and I won the first game, and it's it's a complete it's an honor, and it's something that doesn't really hits you until later on in life. You know, you go, holy smokes. You know. And, I, and then now, the bad part about that is I had to pitch against Mantle. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now going going back to Mantle a little bit, was uh, this, the scene in the locker room pretty much what everybody said it was as far as, you know, the players being, you know, you know, really outside, I guess outside of the locker room because, you know, inside the locker room, they, you know, they, they stuck to the code and everything and, you know, everything was professional. But were, were, were they as crazy as people uh, make them out to be? Uh, let's put it this way. In those days, when I was in New York, I was the loneliest person in the world. 
Uh, that's you know, I'm I'm trying to get my book published or get it finished. Let's put it this way. And I'm going to tell you something. With me, when I was in New York, once you get up to the big leagues, all those guys are established. You don't have no roommate. You don't have a roommate that you know you live with on uh, at home. You know you're, you're by yourself. What they did on the road, guys like Mantle, Ford, Barra, Bauer, and everything else, I have no idea. I I I I heard, just like you heard, and you read, and everything else. Mickey and Whitey took Coates and I out to a. a a Western place in Boston. And I want to put $20 on the bar, and Mickey says, put that back in your pocket. When you make as much money as me, and I said, don't hold your breath. <laughs> you know, something like that. But I threw it through it anyway. And they took care. Like, Larson took me underneath his wing. You know, told me how to drink. Told me how to drink after dinner drinks. I know that. And, and Maris took me out one time to, you know, up in Boston. You know, for seafood and that. So, the, the camaraderie was really, really neat and, and and great. But just remember, that was all on the road. When they're home, they go home. They go across the bridge, George Washington Bridge, and you're in in the Bronx. You know, at the uh, uh, what the heck was the name of that? The concourse, Grand Concourse. It's lonely. It's it's you know it really is. But as far as Scooter, I I didn't go drinking with him. On my own, I did my own little thing, you know. Now when I go to Los Angeles, it's a little different because a lot of my friends like Kenny Hunt and Duke Miles comes back out there, and uh, now you live with somebody that you knew from before. You, you, you am I? Making sense here? Yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely. I'm fine, yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, from, from being a Yankee to being as a free, you're, you're, no, no you're not free from that, you know, you'll always have that in you. It was like being in, in the Marines. If you're a Marine, it's if you're never an ex, you're, you're a former, I was a former Yankee. That carries over. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not, you know, when I first got there, a lot of, crap was going on and a lot of fun. Whoa, I'm going, whoa. Well, all of a sudden I realized, hey, wait a minute. This is a game. This is supposed to be fun. I talked to everybody. You know, there's not too many people that I didn't talk to in the stands. I got my butt chewed out one day by Dizzy Trout. Really? Yeah, because I'm in, well, I'm in Chicago and my back is turned and I'm hearing somebody hollered, what number is Belinsky? Well, I got had Belinsky up to my, up above my head. You know, I go, oh my gosh. Somebody else, so finally, I turned around and I said, why don't you buy a scorecard? And boy, he says, I pitched in the big leagues when you were a little kid, blah, blah, blah. And I turned around and I Dizzy Trout, and I said, oh, my God, Dizzy, I'm sorry. He said, what's the problem with this game? The people don't, you know, the players don't talk enough to the fans. Well, needless to say, I did. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. Now, looking back, looking back, I was actually looking at your hitting stats. You didn't seem to be a bad hitting pitcher. Well, I'll tell you what Moose told me one day. I swear to you, and this was in 1960. Moose told me, he says, you know what? You should have been, you'd be a better hitter than you were, were a pitcher. I said, thanks a lot. <laughs> he says, no, I really mean that. Hey, he hits. says, I think, he says, you run good. 
you've naturally got a good arm. He says, you know what? You would have worked that. You'd have been a better hitter. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at your 1961 season. You, you know, you were you two thirty four hitter, three doubles, two homers, eleven RBIs. Yep. I tell you, I can't see too many even National League pitchers now that you know maintain stats like that. So it looks like you could kind of hold your own with the bat. Yeah, but John, I worked at it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I you... worked at it. I followed. You know, if I if Ted Williams came out with something, uh, I read his book. You know, I read and I watched guys. And now you can, you know, and, and, and plus the fact that I used to sit next to Turley on the bench, or stand next to him, and we had a lot of the pitchers' pitches. We had there. We knew what was coming. He was absolutely fantastic. And I would sit next to him, and he'd say, "Look at this," and I'd go, "Holy smokes!" I had we had no Pappas. Uh, we had we had all the all the. Uh, well, let's see, Gary Bell, Mudcat Grant, um, good pitchers. We knew what they were throwing. Yeah. Now, one thing I wanted I wanted to point out about you know, particularly about the way the game's changed now. You look at a lot of pitchers, and of course, the American League went to the you know the designated hitter. But you know, looking being a National League fan, that's pretty much where I grew up, and that's where I follow. Yeah. The pitchers don't seem to practice at all. As you far know why? As, as far they're as typecast hitting. in junior, they're they're typecast in, in in high school, and they're especially in colleges. Yeah. Once you go to a college, you're you're a pitcher. That's it. Well, can I? No, I got a DH in the whole thing. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like they just they, they just don't put, anymore, put any effort John. into hitting it, you know, at all. And you could tell by by the results. I mean, well, now, now going back to somebody like you, who obviously took pride in hitting, made sure you studied the game, you know, not not just for what you throw as a pitcher, but for what you, you know, do as a hitter on the field. It not just, only it just that, doesn't seem we like hit in the minor leagues. We hit. Yeah. We hit when we were 18 years old, and we came off the sandlots. And American Legion, and, you know, I didn't go to college. I had I had a chance to go, you know, to a couple of schools. But, hey, wait a minute. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to play ball. But I hit, and I swung a bat no matter what. I picked up one of Moose's bat, bats one day, and it was like picking up a wagon tongue. <laughs> I says, "What?" He says, "That's thirty-four ounces, thirty-six inches." I said, "Oh my goodness!" You know, he used it right at the knob. Same so was Mickey. Mickey had all big bats. Not nowadays. No, definitely not. But um, listen, before I let you go, so I just wanted to ask. You know, obviously you had your time with the Yankees. You know, it looks like you really embraced being a Yankee. And then, of course, you take the the more of a veteran, a leader approach when you go to the Angels. Do you look at yourself more as a Yankee or an Angel? You know, all these years later. Oh, that's unfair. <laughs> that's unfair. Well, I'd have to say more more of an Angel because I pitched more out there. You know, uh, but how many guys, John? How many guys get to sit and sit in the clubhouse? And I'm going to use this as an example. It's not going to, if nobody likes it, tough. Sitting and having a beer with Mickey and Whitey and everything else. And I'm shooting a breeze with him and Hank Bauer. So with me, I, I kind of grew, grew up with the, with the Angels. Whereas with the Yankees, you had to be a man right now, you know, pow, or, you know, wow. This is the, the Yankees, Joe D, 
you know, uh, and I saw, I saw Reynolds come through the clubhouse one day. He had his shirt off. He was walking there. I said, oh, my gosh. This guy's humongous. You know, ornery, mean-looking guys. You know, men's men. But, but back to your question, probably I would have to say the Angels because of the three years and, you know, having one, two good, pretty good years until John Barley Cohen took over my life. I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, hey, absolutely, man. Yeah. So, so do you think you think probably being a Yankee probably made you a better angel? The first year, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Yeah, and then the second year I became kind of a, more of a you know, maverick type. Uh, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the easiest guy to get along with because, uh, you know, I was a good teammate, but I was, I had the RA, you know, if I didn't pitch, you know, you took me out of a game, I'd break up clubhouses, and I, I even did that with the Yankees, you know, a couple of times. And and Jim uh, Jim Turner told me one day, he says, you remind me of Allie Reynolds. And I says, if I could pitch like Allie Reynolds, I'd tear up all the clubhouses, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, you, what, uh, what, what do you think it's from? It was just passion? You you, you wore the game on your sleeve? If some didn't yeah, I did. Really I wore my emotions on my sleeve, and it wasn't very nice. Uh, as I look back now, because I hurt myself more than anybody else. I was so hard on myself about losing, and it had to do, a lot to do with my upbringing and everything else. I just, it was, you know, baseball was the only thing that I knew in life, John. But, you know, and of course, when that left me, then I told you a little bit about John Bowery Corn. But when losing... It was, you know, there was no, no, none of this, oh, you pitched a good game. Oh, yeah, I lost. You know, no way. Jim, Jim, Turner, Jim Turner, I lost the game. Went out of the game. Uh, I had a one nothing shutout in the ninth inning against Minnesota. And I eventually got beat. Mantle and a couple of guys said, nice game, Eli. And Turner came up to me and he grabbed me like he usually does. He grabs me and he said, let me tell you something, young man. The good ones win games one to nothing, and it always stuck with me. Yeah, that's 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 deep because you know it's pretty much what it comes down to. You know, no yeah. matter how well you pitch, no matter how well you play, it's Not, what late. side what side you come on—the winning yeah. side or the losing side. Well, I always tell people too. You know, you know, especially after what I put myself through and a lot of other people, is that any how you start, it's how you finish. Absolutely, man. I couldn't say that any better myself. Listen, yeah. Eli, I really appreciate you coming on, man. I hopefully, you know, we can speak again I get uh, sometime in the future again, man. I really appreciate you. I'd be more than happy you. to, John. Find find me find me a find me a collaborator from my book. Uh, I need help. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Listen, we'll stay in touch, and you know, I look forward to the book coming out. And I honestly would be one well, of the first people to read it. We'll see if I can. Okay. All right. Good luck, man. Eli. All right, John. Take care of yourself, man. You too, buddy. Bye bye. Hey, that was Eli Gruba. The uh, former pitcher for the Yankees in the 1960s, of course, ended up being taken first overall by the expansion Los Angeles Angels in the, uh, the what was it, the early 1960s, 1960 going into the 61 season. And listen, I mean, you, you could tell really a different era of baseball than it is now from hitting as a pitcher. As you could see, Eli really put a lot of pride into hitting. He read books. You know, hitting was part of the game. You played a position, whether it was second base or pitcher. You were expected to come up there and do your thing as a hitter. And 
that's one thing that I really don't like what goes on now is you got the National League pitchers now. The ninth, ninth spot in the batting order is an easy out. You know, the guys, you're lucky if you hit 100. If you hit 200, you're a great hitter. And I think that's crap. I don't, I, don't, I don't like the way the game has evolved in that way. And I understand from, you know, perspective. And Eli really made a good point when he talks about how when it's selected in high school or college that you're going to be a pitcher, that's all you worked on. And that's all you work on now. It wasn't like that before. You know, pitchers could be a good hitter. And you see a guy that hit, you know, two, you know, 230 for his career. And it, it, that's, that's not bad. But there was pitchers in that time that hit 260, 270. Now, if a pitcher hits 200 in the National League, it's considered a good thing. And you got to be honest, I don't, I don't like that at all. But listen, thanks a lot to Eli for having a couple minutes today. You know, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll get something together. Hopefully his, uh, his book will end up coming out. I mean, I'm sure he's guy's got a lot to talk about. You know, from being with you know with the Yankees, from you know guys like Mantle and Whitey Ford, and then of course Roger Maris in 1960. I mean, he's got a lot of stories to tell. You could tell, and you know the guy you know really was passionate about what he did, and he really he gave you everything he got, and you could tell from day one with the Yankees to the Angels days to the end when things weren't going so well. The guy was passionate. So once again, thanks to Eli Gruba for having a couple minutes today. Um, was talking about a little bit about the Mets and Yankees before, but I'm going to talk about uh, an anniversary which happened a couple days ago, and that was the what was it about 15 year anniversary of the death of longtime Yankees broadcaster Mel Allen. And what I think is, I don't think it was really right the way things ended up happening with him. He was really one of the legends in calling a game from 1939 when he started to taking it on into the 60s. To when he eventually lost his job, which I don't think was fair at all when the Yankees fired him. But this guy was one of the best broadcasters in the history of the game. And if this guy had the opportunity to be a broadcaster from the Yankees from day one to day, you know, to the end, he would be mentioned in the same breath as a Vince Scully or a Bob Prince, guys like that who were just amongst the best ever. And it's unfortunate. But what he did was something that's probably very inspirational to a person like me or a lot of other people in the field. When he started this week in baseball, I'll tell you, that was the beginning of your national baseball coverage. Because you were lucky if you got a game on one of the major networks a week or a month. You know, if you were a fan of, you know, when I'm talking about, you know, the 70s and the 80s. So if you're a fan of the Mets or a fan of the Yankees, you see your local games all the time. There was no national games. So if you wanted to see how the Montreal Expos were doing or you wanted to get you know an idea of who this guy was, Andre Dawson or Gary Carter, or if you were an American League guy and you wanted to learn a little bit about you know uh, Harmon Killebrew, all you really got was articles in a the newspaper. There's obviously no internet. So this week in baseball became really that national, you know, centripetal kind of force where you really got to see everything. You get you get to see everything that's going on in a game and what's up with the best players in a game. And what about this team from, let's say, California that's off to a really good start? Why are they? What kind of players they got? Now all you got to do is just click your little mouse and you can find it. I mean, most people have it on their mobile devices. 
You know, most people grab it off their phone right now, and they're just like, hey, there you go, baseballreference.com, you know, MLB Network. You get it all all the time now, but you didn't back in the 70s and the 80s, and Mel Allen brought it to you. And really, he's going to go down in history, unfortunately, for what happened with the Yankees, but this this is a guy that's going to be, that's absolutely missed. You know, a guy that, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't really old enough to be able to, you know, take over for a guy like that. But he's absolutely one of the best ever. Now, Freddie Galvis of the Phillies receives a 50-game suspension for using performance-enhancing drugs. And to me, listen, yeah, it's a surprise. But look at it from a baseball player's aspect here. And I know, listen, it's not a popular opinion. Some people are going to disagree with me right now. But if you're Freddie Galvis, you know you're not going to be able to put numbers like Chase Utley or Jimmy Rollins up. He's pretty much a punch and judy hitter known for his glove. And really the maximum potential for a guy like that is to be a backup infielder and maybe have a 10-year career as a backup and maybe make a million dollars once or twice a season in your career. So an opportunity comes. You got you got a guy like, you know, Jimmy Rollins who was hurt last year. You got a guy like Chase Utley who was hurt last year and this year. And what do you see as you're moving up through the minor leagues? Opportunity. An opportunity to get in there and get a chance potentially to play at either second base or shortstop. And of course Galvis was a shortstop. But knowing that those two positions could possibly open up because of the injuries. And listen, would I do it if I was in this situation? I don't know. I'm not going to give an answer. But I tell you, I honestly don't blame him. I mean, you may, this may be the one chance that this guy got. Now, did he do it responsibly? Obviously not because he got caught. And I'm telling you, and I've said this all along, there's plenty of players doing steroids right now that aren't getting caught. And they found ways to get it in their system where it doesn't come up on the drug test. So for that, shame on Freddie Galvez for getting detected. And you know what he has to suffer now? Because he's going to be forever linked to the steroid era now. And the guy's, what, a 220 hitter for his career. And you wonder, hey, he needed that to just hit 220 with a couple home runs. Now, he obviously started out well last year. He was hitting home runs for, you know, for, the, you know, for AAA. And obviously it was artificially enhanced. But here's a guy in my mind. I don't think he was a real good, you know, I don't think I don't think he was really set to be an everyday player. And he got his chance this year. Unfortunately, he got snagged in a drug test. He's got to serve a 50-game ban and probably won't get a, another chance similar to what he's got now. I mean, he may get a chance to play a little bit, but think when 50 games are over, hopefully for the Philadelphia Phillies, Chase Utley is back. If he's not back by then, then you know they may have already thrown in the towel for the season. Because one thing that I don't like about what the Phillies have done this year is they have predicated a lot of what they're doing based on Chase Utley and Ryan Howard returning. And it's more of like the Jerry Manuel approach as the Met manager in 2009 and 2010, where he said, hey, we got to just hold the fort down until the big guys get back. Well, what if the big guys don't come back? And... The Phillies, unfortunately, are going through that right now. They're trying to figure out what kind of role players, what kind of guys filling in are going to be able to do the job that you know a Chase Utley or a Ryan Howard can do, and they've had no success with it. And the fact that they've had no success with it is a lot of the reason why they're in last place, 
And, of course, the injury to Roy Halladay is killer. That has absolutely destroyed them. Because, you know, you could say at least they got the pitching. And, yeah, with Cliff Lee and Cole Hamels, particularly with Hamels pitching for his next contract, they got a good chance to win, but they need Halladay, especially without those big bats in there. And, unfortunately, things have not gone well for the Phillies this year. And, listen, I think we'll find out over the course of the next couple weeks to a month whether the Phillies are going to be able to go on a run to get themselves back in things. This is the five-time defending National League East champions, a team that has a World Series and another National League pennant over that stretch. And they're sitting in last place right now. And listen, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of good competitive fire in the National League this year, and it's not just in the NL East. You know, you look at a team like the Pirates who who are hanging in there, playing pretty well. You know, battling with the Cardinals and the Reds, and you know, even teams that are not very good. You know, win loss wise, like the Brewers, like the Diamondbacks, like you know, maybe even the Rockies can beat you on any given night. And I tell you, it's pretty interesting. It absolutely is. That I, honestly, I don't think I, I don't think you really know what's going to happen between now and July thirty first. You know, it is what Ruben Amaro says about the Phillies potentially being sellers. Is that a possibility? Well, listen, if it is, then it's kind of scary because I can't imagine a team like this give it up. I think they have a right. Yeah, listen, if it gets to, you know, the end, you know, beginning of August into September and things aren't going right, yeah, you get ready for next year. But right now would not be a good time to bail. And I expect this team to be in there. Another thing I want to bring up because, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to get to it in a second part of the, the second hour of the show is uh, Jamie Moyer. Looks like he actually might be back in the majors soon. Uh, Moyer, of course, released by the Colorado Rockies after he started a season with them. Did not get off to a good start, but has been pitching very well for uh, Norfolk, which is the Phil- I'm sorry, the uh, the Baltimore Orioles AAA affiliate. And he is on a track to pretty much come back. Now, the Orioles really have five starters now. They would have to kind of move somebody to the bullpen or maybe use Moyer as a reliever to bring him up. And listen, I think the guy has earned an opportunity to come back to the majors, and he needed to do that. You know, he he showed a lot of heart in spring training. He showed that he could still throw the ball. But really, right right now, I think he's earned a call-up. So hopefully he'll be able to get to see that soon. But once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. want to thank Eli Grubach for having a couple minutes, a great interview, and hopefully you'll be able to listen to it back on the archives page of my johnpiele.com website. But uh, second hour on the way, um, take about a five-minute break. We'll be back. Uh, Marvin Freeman will be joining us and uh, potentially even Brett Boone. So uh, lots to go over. We'll talk to you soon. Be back in a little bit.